You are listening to the Grace Covenant Church Audio Podcast. Well, grab your sermon notes there if you would. This morning, we're going to look at several different passages of Scripture, so you might want to keep your Bible handy. Today, we want to go on a discovery journey, somewhat like it would be if you were going on a vacation at a historic site, something like maybe a Washington, D.C., or or Charleston, or Gettysburg, if you've been to one of those locations on a previous visit or vacation, then you would go back and see sites that you've already seen before. But how many of you know there's always new discoveries to make, right? You know, every time I go back to D.C., it's like, wow, there's a new discovery. But if you were going to one of those locations like a Gettysburg or a Washington, D.C. for the first time, it would just be like, wow, wow, there's so much here. You know, interesting for my wife and I, we're, we're quite different, uh, especially as it relates to vacation. When I go to a place like Gettysburg, I want to read every plaque. I want to see every side. I want to gather all the information I could gather. Early on in our marriage, we spent three days in Gettysburg. My wife would tell you it's the three longest days of her life. She was like bored to tears. But I want all the information. There's something like that. We're going to go on a discovery tour this morning. And the discovery's not... A historic location, but the discovery tour is going to be about what we believe. Who are we as a church family? Uh, what are the convictions that we hold? If, if there's a question that I'm um, often asked, it's this question, what is Foursquare? I mean, just this week I was doing some follow-up phone calls and someone asked me that very question, what is Foursquare? Like, is it a cult? Like, are y'all part of a cult? Like, are you a weird organization? Like, Foursquare, what is, what is, uh, what is Foursquare? And so, because I'm asked that question often, I thought it might be helpful for us to spend some time over the next two weeks talking about who we are and what we believe as a church family. You know, oftentimes when people come to Grace Covenant, uh, they first think that we're a non-denominational fellowship, that we're not a denomination, that we're not a part of a denomination, simply because we don't post a denomination out on the sign out front or on the front door. So they assume that we're, we're not a part of a denomination, but we, we actually are. We're a part of a larger church family, so we're not a non-denominational, we're actually a denominational church. We're a part of a larger church family called the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel. Now, let me say that being a part of a denomination is not bad. You know, oftentimes when we think of denominations, you know, we think, well, they're, uh, you know, they're all bad. Let me let me tell you the blessing of being a part of a larger church family, being a part of a denomination, is it offers us structure, it provides accountability, and enables us to partner with a larger family, a larger group of individuals, which I believe positions the local church to be effective. So being a part of a denomination is not all bad. Maybe you've had a bad experience with a denomination before, and you, you had a bad experience because sometimes denominations can be bad. Listen, sometimes you can be bad, right? Come on, get on board with me. Sometimes you can be bad, right? Yeah, so even so, it is with a denomination. Sometimes denominations are not so healthy. Uh, but for us, we are a part of what I believe is a is a healthy church family that has positioned us for greater kingdom effectiveness. And one of the aspects of Grace Covenant that I really love, that I so value, is the diversity 
of backgrounds, of the diversity of church backgrounds that are represented here on any given Sunday morning. I mean, this Grace Covenant family is made up of a lot of folks from a lot of different places. Matter of fact, let's do this really quick. This is always interesting for me. How many of you would say that you arrived at Grace Covenant from like a Baptist background? Some Baptist folks. You're no longer Baptist. You're Baptocostal today. Okay. <laughs> what about Methodist? Any of you come a Methodist? So just kind of look around the room as people are raising their hands in the balcony. How about Presbyterians? Do we have any of the frozen chosen in the house today? <laughs> I'm just kidding, right? I really love our Presbyterian family. What about Catholics? Do we have any Catholics in the house today? Yeah, we have some Catholics. What about AME Zion? Methodist Church. Any AME Zion folks? What about Lutheran folks? Any Lutherans? One, oh, two brave hands. Um, <laughs> What a Episcopalian? Any Episcopalians? Yeah, a few Episcopalians. What about uh, Pentecostal? Obviously, that's my uh, heritage. Yeah, so even in this gathering this morning, you know, if you watch the hands go up, I and mean, we have people from all different backgrounds who have, uh, who have arrived at Grace Covenant Church. And this is what I love about our family. Though we have a diversity of backgrounds represented, we are simply committed to glorifying God and seeing His kingdom extended around the world. Really simple. What, we are part of a church family. We are connected to a, a larger denomination. But really, uh, our focus and our purpose is just to help people love Jesus more and to live that out in their lives. And I think that's why individuals from so many different backgrounds have found a place here at Grace Covenant. But we are, we are part of a larger family, as I identified, called the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel. It was founded in the year 1927. Um, don't yawn yet. This is not a history lesson. Just a really quick statement here. 1927 by a lady. called Her name was Amy Simple McPherson. She had a passion for evangelism, was actually an evangelist at heart. Her passion was to see the whole gospel taken to the whole world. And out of her passion to mobilize people to preach the gospel message around the world, she started a denomination. I never intended to start a denomination. That was kind of not the purpose or the focus. But after a while, there were so many people and so many missionaries being sent out, so many churches being planted. It was like, okay, we need some structure. And when they began to build structure, what they ended up with was a denomination called the Foursquare Church. And we have, from a very outset, as a church family, we were uh, built on a theme verse. The theme verse is Hebrews 13.8. It's there in your notes. It's on the screen as well this morning. So let's read this together. Would you read it with me? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's read it again. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let me tell you what that verse means. It's simply this. Who Jesus was, he still is. Are you with me? What Jesus did, he's still doing. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, Jesus doesn't change. What he did, he's still doing. What he, what he said is still life-giving today. So the Foursquare Church is... A Christ-centered denomination, and it's built on four key points of doctrine, or four strong beliefs, if you will. If someone asks me, what is Foursquare? Never heard of Foursquare. What is Foursquare? I usually, I give them these four statements, and we're a Christ-centered denomination, 
and we believe these four things. First, that Jesus Christ is our Savior. Now, I'm going to unpack this more in a minute. But we believe that there is only one way to God, and that way is through Jesus Christ. Now, it may be as you're out and about, you hear people talk, they might say, well, you know, there's many ways to God, you know, just kind of figure out what works for you and and choose that path. I'm here to declare to you boldly today, there's not many ways, there's one way. And that way is through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But he is the way. So Jesus Christ, our Savior, our second key belief is, is Jesus Christ, the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his disciples that he, that he would send what the Father had promised, being the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. What Jesus promised would happen, happen on the day of Pentecost is recorded in Acts chapter 2. The third key point of belief is that Jesus Christ is our healer. Not only did Jesus heal as defined in the Gospels, but what we would contend and believe for is that Jesus is still healing today. Why? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why we boldly and confidently pray for sick people to be healed every Sunday and every day of the week. Why? Because we believe that Jesus is still in the healing business. The the fourth key key point of belief is Jesus Christ is the soon coming King. As the scripture clearly reveals, we believe that Jesus is coming back for his bride, the church. And we're directed to live in expectation of his return. Now, it's these four points of doctrine that that are foundational to our church family. And so over the next two weeks, this Sunday and next Sunday, I'm going to spend a little time going deeper into these four points, these four key points of belief. So let's begin with this. Jesus Christ savior god had a rescue plan that he implemented and the rescue plan involved sending his son his only son to become like us to save us it's interesting as the angel brought the angelic announcement to joseph that joseph was going to be like the step-in dad for the messiah the, the angel announced the birth of the Savior like this. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She, being Mary, will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus. Notice, because he will save his people from their sin. The plan, though, didn't begin here in Matthew. We see the plan coming to fruition in Matthew, but the plan actually began way back in the book of Genesis. Genesis actually 1, 2, and 3 record the, uh, the crisis that happened in the Garden of Eden. Where there was once a place of perfection where we, there was not a presence of sin, we, we find there that Adam and Eve rebelled against God as, re, as a result of their rebellion, sin entered the world. As a result of the rebellion, all of a sudden there's a problem that this unique relationship they had once enjoyed in this place of perfection was now sold. It was tainted. They were separated from God. So what did God do at that point? Genesis chapter 3, at that point, God first spoke of His plan of redemption. It was there in the midst of the crisis of the fall in the Garden of Eden that God begins to unveil His plan. He prophetically speaks of the coming of a Redeemer, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of that of His Son to bring uh, 
humanity back into a place of right relationship with God. Matter of fact, if you have your Bibles, look with me to Genesis chapter 3. It's easy to find. It's the first book. Genesis chapter 3, beginning with, with verse 14. And again, this is in the context here, is the crisis of the fall. To the Lord God said to the serpent, verse 14, to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And, and all wild animals, you'll crawl on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. Notice verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This verse is the first prophetic um, statement that we have of the coming of the Messiah. The striking of the heel um, speaks to the reality that Satan would bring about the crucifixion of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The crushing of his head speaks of the reality that Jesus Christ would destroy that of death, hell, and sin through the power and the provision of the cross. But in the midst of the crisis of the fall, going all the way back to the beginning of the problem, because it all really begins in Genesis, right? That's where the problem begins. That's where sin entered. That's where this obstacle that keeps us, human beings, from right relationship with God. The issue is sin. And in the midst of the crisis, it's there that God begins to say, hey, I'm sending a redeemer. I'm going to send my son. So what we read about in the Gospels actually began way back in the book of Genesis, But because of the fall, because of sin, we needed a Savior to be able to enjoy a relationship with God. See, here's the reality. Humanity had a problem we couldn't solve. That was the issue. We had a problem we couldn't solve. You know, recently, I was traveling. I was trying to make it to a a destination for a really important meeting. And I didn't know where I'd go. I didn't know where I was going. I hadn't been to the destination before. And often, as happens, I left a little late. So I'm a little late. I'm trying to get to a place that I've never been to before for an important meeting, and I got lost. Like, I got, I got really lost. I got so lost, Siri couldn't even help me get found. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm panicking because this is an important meeting that I'm supposed to be at, and I'm lost. I have no idea where I'm at. And because I'm a male, it is absolutely against my nature to stop and ask directions. <laughs> Man, you can identify with that. But I humbled myself because I was, I was in trouble. I had a problem I couldn't solve. I was lost. I pulled into the gas station. The attendant was so wonderful, gave me clear directions. And amazing, I arrived at my destination on time for the meeting. But my point simply is this. I had a problem I couldn't solve on my own. I was lost. I didn't know where I was at and how to get to where I needed to be. Listen, in a similar fashion, humanity had a problem we couldn't solve. We couldn't solve the problem on our own. We couldn't couldn't resolve this issue called sin, the sin that that separates us from God. Paul in Romans 3.23 says it like this, For all have sinned. All. That includes everyone in the room today. All. Have sinned and, and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of our sin, humanity is, is separated from God, from God. In Colossians 1.21, the scripture says, Once you were alienated from God, your enemies in your own minds, notice, because of your evil behavior, because of that issue of sin in your life. So basically, we were in a situation where we had no hope. But here's the good news. 
God in his love came to our rescue. What we celebrated this morning with communion is this very statement. God in his love came to our rescue. He took action. He intervened in our crisis to bring a solution. And it was all because of love, because of God's love for us, that he sent a Savior. Again, John 3.16 says it well, for God so loved the world. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners. In other words, God didn't say to you, hey, get yourself cleaned up and we can talk about it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's through Jesus' death and resurrection that we can receive the righteousness of Jesus. Because Jesus took on the power and the penalty of sin, we can be free and we can be righteous before God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made Him, being Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, the righteousness of Jesus was credited to your account, imputed to your account. And that today, today you can trade death for life. Today you can, tra- you can trade rejection for acceptance. Why? Because the wonder, and this is the amazing thing of the whole story, it's all possible because of the wonder of God's grace. Listen, you didn't have to do anything to earn it. Isn't that amazing? Matter of fact, you cannot earn salvation. It's by God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are we saved through faith. Not that anyone could boast. In other words, we had nothing to do with it. It was God's gift to us. All we did is receive, receive the gift. So salvation is available for any and every person who would simply open their lives to receive God's grace and God's provision. You know, a simple summary of the gospel message is this. Jesus came to die that we might live. Jesus Christ, Savior, to die that we might live. He came to be the ultimate sacrifice, bearing our sin on the cross, defeating death by resurrecting the life so that we might have life, that we might have abundant life while we're on this earth, that we might have the promise of eternal life beyond this earth. Jesus has provided the way of salvation. He is Savior. He's he's made the gift available. But you know what? For, For every individual, you have to receive the gift. Just the fact that Jesus Christ is Savior is not a it's not enough to save you. It's not enough just to know that truth. Well, you you have to receive the gift. So how does someone come to salvation? I like to keep things really simple. So for me, here it is, ABC. ABC. How does someone come to know Christ as their Savior? First, they admit. They admit that they're a sinner. They admit that they can't save themselves. They admit that they can't resolve their own problem. The second is they believe. The B is they believe. They believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, fully the Son of God, who was virgin born, who was without sin, who was crucified and resurrected. But they have to believe. And then the C is this confess, to confess Christ as your Savior. A, B, C. You know, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says if you confess 
Jesus Christ is Lord, if you believe in your heart, then the scripture says at that point you are saved. So the good news for humanity is that there's a way of salvation and that way is Jesus Christ. Jesus is our Savior. But not only is He our Savior, He's also our baptizer. This brings us to the second point of belief that we hold as a church family. It's Jesus Christ, baptizer in the Holy Spirit. It was interesting that before Jesus began His public ministry, the Scripture tells us that He went to the River Jordan. He was there baptized by John. And it's interesting how John the Baptist, it's interesting how another John actually records this in in the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 32 and 33. Listen to how the scripture reads. John said, I would not have known him except the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So notice before Jesus even began his public ministry, John was saying, hey, he's the one that's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Not just save but baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus, after he was crucified, resurrected, before he ascended to the Father, in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, says something very similar. Listen to how the scripture reads. For John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So here Jesus was speaking of what would happen on the day of Pentecost as recorded in Acts 2. As the disciples and other followers were gathered praying and worshiping in the upper room, the Holy Spirit was poured out on all of those present, and they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, this word baptized is an interesting word. The Greek word is baptizo, baptizo, and it literally means to immerse in or to overflow. When, when we baptize someone in water, it's, it's a practice that we baptize by immersion. Now, every once in a while, if someone's paranoid, scared to death that the pastor's not going to let them up out of the water, we go the Methodist route and we sprinkle them. But for the most part, we immerse. We totally immerse. Because the word baptize means to immerse. Well, here, the Scripture says clearly in, uh, in John one thirty three, and then again in Acts one five. I mean, Jesus is introduced as the one who would immerse in or bring about an overflow or a fullness of, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. So Pentecost was not a one-time event. If there's anything I would want you to leave with today, it's this. Pentecost was not a one-time event, but it's an ongoing reality for the church today. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the baptizer He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he did, he's still doing. Are you with me? What he said is still true today. So, as we look to the Bible, this is is what we discover. Jesus promised to send the Helper, the the Holy Spirit. In John 14, Jesus told the disciples that, that he was leaving. And if you read that passage of Scripture, the, the disciples were wrecked. It's like, how, how can you leave? I mean, you're the Messiah. You were supposed to establish your rule. Matter of fact, the Messiah, was, we, they had it all wrong, but they thought that Jesus was going to overthrow the oppressive Roman rule of the day and establish a kingdom through conflict. And he, Jesus did come to establish the kingdom, but his kingdom was not of this world. 
And the way he would establish a kingdom is through giving his life through death on the cross. And so they couldn't understand, Jesus, why are you leaving us? I mean, we left everything to follow you. And in the midst of it, Jesus begins to speak words of comfort, encouragement to them. John 14, 1 begins like this. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I, I would have told you. And if you read on down in, in John chapter 14, Jesus begins to speak about the comforter, the helper. Basically, he says, hey, guys, I'm leaving But it's for your good that I'm leaving because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the third person of the Trinity. I've been with you. He's going to be in you. Let's read it. Turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Let's look here to the words of Jesus. John, chapter 14, beginning with verse 16. Notice Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. An advocate is one who comes alongside to help. I will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus goes on to say, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to just leave you on your own to figure this out. I'm going to send... The helper. So what Jesus spoke of happened on the day of Pentecost and it transformed the disciples. See, this is what Jesus knew. Jesus knew the disciples needed help. He knew that they did not have the ability to live out effective relationship with God. And he knew they certainly did not have the ability to carry forth the gospel message to the ends of the earth. He knew they, he knew they needed help. He knew that left of their own, they were going to really mess this thing up. So what did he do? He sent... A helper. He sent the Holy Spirit. And I would submit to you this morning, just as the disciples needed help, so you and I need help today. And if there's anything I've discovered about myself, left to myself, I have the innate ability to really screw things up. And just follow me around for a while and you'll see it happen. Left to myself, I'm in trouble. I need the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. If we're going to effectively live out relationship with our Father, and if we're going to effectively carry out the ministry, the work of Jesus today, what do we need? We need help. We need the helper. We need the comforter. We need the the Holy Spirit. So what, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? Two things. First, the Holy Spirit indwells us at salvation. Indwells us. You know, when an individual opens their life to the saving grace of God, when, when they come to a point of salvation, there's several things that happen instantly and simultaneously. I mean, just like that, as someone opens their life to God's saving grace. The first thing is this, slate is wiped clean. Isn't that good news? Your sins are forgiven. Everything in the past is forgiven. It's gone. Uh, Psalm 103 says it like this, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your transgressions from you. So your, your sins are totally forgiven. The second thing that happens is you receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His righteousness is credited to your account. The third thing that happens is this. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live in you. Matter of fact, Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. He says that you are the temple of, the dwelling place of, the Holy Spirit. All of that happens... At the point of salvation. 
So you, you are indwelt. If you are a Christ follower, then you have been indwelt. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. Matter of fact, Paul says it like this, Ephesians 1.13. says, And you also were included in Christ. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, having believed, notice he says, you were marked in him with a seal. What's the seal? The promised Holy Spirit. You were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Pastor Jack Hayford summarizes this well in in one of his books. Listen to what he wrote, just one sentence. It says, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the believer so the person of Jesus can be seen in us. And he comes to overflow our lives so that the power of Jesus can happen through us. So the presence of Jesus in us and the power of Jesus through us. It's, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit indwells us, but his work doesn't stop there. He also empowers us to effectively live out the faith. So he indwells us and he empowers us. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said these words, but you'll receive power, dunamis, a dynamic. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That power that he spoke of in Acts 1-8, again, it happened in Acts chapter 2. The disciples received what? The power, the dynamic of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Listen, they were radically transformed. I mean, I would encourage you to do this study. Read about the disciples in the Gospels and read about the same guys in the book of Acts. And what you're going to discover is like they're not even the same guys. Now, they're the same guys, but they're not the same guys. What happened? It was the dynamic of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus said they would receive, they received. Acts chapter 2, and again, Acts chapter 2 is not just an event, an historical event. It's the beginning of an outpouring. It's in this dispensation that we live. That Jesus Christ says, I'm the baptizer. I'm the one to bring the fullness of the Spirit to you. You know, it's interesting if you look on into the book of Acts. After the disciples received the empowering of the Holy Spirit, they went from hiding behind locked doors to boldly proclaiming the gospel. The very religious leaders that they were hiding from, the ones that crucified Jesus, they began to boldly confront them face to face. Not only that, the miracles began to happen, supernatural stuff. Like the very stuff Jesus did in the gospels, the disciples are now doing in the book of Acts. I mean, Acts chapter 3, it's Peter and, Peter and James on their way to the, the synagogue. For, for prayer, and there's this crippled man, and Peter says something pretty radical. He says, silver and gold I don't have, but in the, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And all of a sudden, he's healed well, miraculously. What was it? The power of the Holy Spirit. If you go on to Acts chapter 8, we have Philip going down to Samaria. And the scripture says that he was casting out demons and all kinds of miracles was happening and such that the people were attracted to the gospel message. I mean, the book of Acts is full of miraculous stuff. How did the disciples do it? Listen, they were common, ordinary folk like you and I. How did they do it? By the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit not only indwells us, but it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to effectively represent Jesus in our world today. The Holy Spirit first reveals Jesus to us and through us. Listen, He is the teacher. 
going back to the Gospel of John, chapter 16, Jesus said that, that the Holy Spirit would lead us into righteousness, that He would convict and correct, that He would reveal truth to us. The Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us and through us. Not only that, the Holy Spirit releases the supernatural through us. It's the fullness that God has for us. Jesus Christ, the baptizer. You know, Paul wrote of this. Interesting. You can check it out later. But 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul identifies nine supernatural. We call them supernatural gifts. Some folks call them the power gifts. Why? It's the power of the Holy Spirit. But Paul talks about nine supernatural gifts that the Holy Spirit brings to the church. For the edification of the church, for the empowering of the church. And this is not the complete list, but it's things like prophecy, words of knowledge, words of wisdom. Words of knowledge being this, I begin to talk about things that I had no knowledge of prior to. In other words, there's an impartation of knowledge by the Holy Spirit. So I begin to speak about things I don't even know about, not because I'm really smart, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to talk about the gift of miracles and the gift of healing. All of those, Paul would say, hey, this is the power of the Spirit. This is what's available to the church today. Why? Get this. Again, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Again, let me say, I know it's redundant, but let me tell you what that means. What he did, he's still doing. What happened in the book of Acts is still happening. I have some, I have some good church friends and I refuse to debate about this stuff. But I have some good church friends who would say, Oh, you know, Pharaoh, what happened in the book of Acts was for the starting of the early church. And, you know, it's not happening today. It's doctrine of cessationism. And I just say, Hey, I love you. I appreciate you. I respect you. You can believe whatever you want, but I believe it's still happening today. It's still happening today. I've seen it. I've experienced it. Not only do I read about it in God's Word. But I've seen it in my own life. I've experienced it in the church. The fullness of God. The fullness of the Spirit. Available today. That we might effectively. That we might effectively live out relationship with God. That we might effectively represent Jesus Christ. In our world today. You know the interesting thing about these two points of belief. That we've talked about this morning. Is that both are free to us. But it requires something of us. We have to ask. See, salvation is, man, it's, again, you're saved by grace. It's God's gift to you. But how many of you know that it's not enough just for a gift to be offered? The gift have to be, has to be received if it becomes yours. Are you with me? If, if, I, have a, if I have a gift for Mal, say, Mal, here's a gift. It's, it's worth about a million because uh, I really like you. Um, <laughs> But Mal never takes the gift, and the gift never becomes his. It's not because I've not offered it. It's simply because he's not received it. It's the same with salvation. It's not enough for someone to, to know that Jesus Christ is Savior. To have that knowledge is not enough. You have to make a decision. You have to receive the gift. It's the same with the fullness of the Spirit. How do we receive? How do we walk in the fullness of the Spirit? Listen, really simple. We ask. Uh, jot this reference down if you still have your notes out you can check it out later Luke 11 11 through 13 Luke 11 11 through 13 it's there that Jesus 
said, what father, if his son asked for a fish, would give him a snake? Or if his son asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion? He said, you wouldn't do that. He says, if you, though, even as evil as you are, would give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? How much more? For who? For those who ask. Again, I like to keep things really simple. How do we receive salvation? We ask. How do we live in the fullness of the Spirit? We ask. And as we ask, the Father gives. Why? He's a good Father. That we might know that of His grace and we might live in that of His power. Jesus Christ, Savior. Jesus Christ, Baptizer. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you this morning that you didn't leave us all on our own to kind of figure this thing out. You gave us great grace and you said, hey, here's power to walk it out. Here's power to live it out. God, I thank you that you're not stingy with your gifts. Lord, sometimes we have a tendency in our humanity to be stingy. But Lord, you freely, you freely give salvation. You freely give of your spirit to anyone and everyone who's willing to ask. Lord, for that, for that we're grateful today. Lord, my prayer for every one of my friends here this morning is that they would walk in your grace and that they would walk in your power. That they would, Lord, open their lives to the fullness, to the immersion in. But I know it. if individuals are here today that they're indwelled, your spirit is with them. But Lord, what I see with the disciples Beyond your spirit indwelling, your spirit overflowed and empowered them that they might be effective. Lord, may that be our desire as we live our lives to honor you. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.